Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 be the psalm that we're in this morning. As we finished up looking at uh, Psalm 22 last week, as we continue working our way through book one of the Psalms, Psalm 1 to 41, we'll we come this morning to Psalm 23, as you can see also is a Psalm of David, and we will begin uh, together by uh, reading uh, the Psalm. And then we'll ask the Lord's blessings on his word. So Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1, David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Well, Father, we are again grateful that in Your kindness and mercy and grace, even though we were a people who deserved only curses and wrath and eternal judgment, You had determined to send Your Son into the world to be the Savior of sinners. When we have come to Him, when by Your grace we have heard the Gospel and received it, He has become to us the shepherd and overseer of our souls so that we can say with David and see with him that the Lord is my shepherd. I pray for our time this morning, Lord, that as we seek to understand the words of this psalm, seek to understand more fully how it is that you shepherd us, your people, and what our ultimate hope is in that reality. I pray that you would open up your word for us, speak to us, shepherd us, and guide us ultimately to the paths of righteousness. I pray in Jesus' name. Oh, um, amen. Well, our... um, Psalm that we uh, come to today, of course, is one that's very familiar. Right? We, we know this one very well. It is uh, essentially your, your John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Right? That's the only verse that everyone knows in the New Testament, John 3.16. Psalm 23 is like the only psalm that everyone probably knows or has heard at some point in their life. Even if they're unfamiliar with Scripture, they have likely heard it. It is a psalm that has been used in many different contexts. It has been used to comfort people who are going through sorrows. It is a psalm that has helped others to see the goodness of God. And the imagery of the psalm, as we look at it, it it shows us why. Uh, This is a psalm that begins by comparing the Lord to a shepherd. We know that a shepherd, particularly a good shepherd, cares for his sheep. He tends to them. He fights for them. He loves them. 
But a shepherd also leads his sheep to their home. And at the end of the psalm, we find that the home that David, as the Lord's sheep, is led to is the house of the Lord. And so from from the beginning of the psalm, we find the Lord being described as a caring shepherd who shepherds his sheep. And as the psalm continues and unfolds, Um, We end up with David, again, the Lord's sheep, being brought to the sheep pen, to the house of the Lord where he will be satisfied all his days. And with this imagery in mind, we learn several important truths about the Lord and his people. And this morning, I just want to explore some of these truths uh, together. One of the the first truths that we find here has to do, of course, with the Lord's shepherding work. Uh, What is it that He does when He shepherds His people? Uh, How does He care for us as His sheep? And one of the things that we find here is, is that the Lord makes His people a content people. He teaches them. He shows them Uh, how to be content uh, in Him. In the first verse, David says again, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the logic of the verse is that because the Lord is David's shepherd, he shall lack nothing. For his part, David, of course, had been a shepherd Before, he knew that it is the shepherd's responsibility and the shepherd's desire to feed the sheep. And because the Lord is David's shepherd, and the Lord is, of course, the creator of all things and the one who possesses all things, there is an endless supply of provisions that comes from the hand of the Lord. The Lord certainly intends to do His people good by providing for them their daily bread. And Jesus Himself taught His disciples, right, not to be anxious about anything. What they will eat, what they will wear. He says in Matthew 6, verse 26, That the birds of the air neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? The Lord will provide for His people. This is one of the ways that He cares for His people. But of course, this doesn't mean, right, that the Lord is going to give us an abundance or make us, you know, filthy rich and incredibly wealthy so that there's not even the slightest thought about what the next week's food may be or the next month's food may be. There may, in fact, be times when we have very little, nothing more, in fact, than just that daily bread, right? What is what is promised to us. Nor is it David's point to say that he or God's people will never experience hunger pangs. Just a few verses later, David will speak about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, which at a bare minimum, implies the inevitability of afflictions among God's people, which could even include things like hunger. And this is a statement that is ultimately one of resolve on David's part. He is saying, I shall not. He is essentially giving a command to himself. He is speaking to himself. I shall not want. Which means that ultimately, David is finding his greatest 
provision and all of his satisfaction in the Lord himself as his shepherd. David could be sitting secure and exalted on his throne, or he could be hiding away in a cave somewhere in fear of his life, and in both situations, he can say the words of this psalm, I shall not want. Because he finds his contentment ultimately not in the comforts or the lack of thereof of his present circumstances, but he finds his contentment in the Lord. The Lord himself is his food. The Lord himself is who satisfies him every day. The Apostle Paul spoke similarly when he said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, that he had learned in whatever situation that he was to be content. And he said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the secret, if you will, is to be able, he goes on to say, to do all things through Him who strengthens me. It is the Lord, in other words, that is Paul's ultimate provision. It is the Lord that satisfies him in every situation, whether hungry or whether having plenty. And therefore, because the Lord is a good shepherd who will satisfy His people, who will never leave His people. He teaches us as His people, as His sheep, to find our contentment in Him. He gives us Himself. And in so doing, He gives to us everything. We come to be possessors of all things by becoming those who both belong to the Lord and who can say, the Lord is my God. We also find here the truth that the Lord's shepherding work gives us rest. His, his work refreshes us when we need it. David puts it this way in verse 2. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside, literally, waters of resting places. And the choice of words that David uses here is interesting because the word for resting places is the same word that is used by the Lord in various places when He speaks of finding a resting place for the temple, for His house to be built upon where he will dwell in the midst of his people. Psalm 132 verses 13 to 14, for example, says, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And then the Lord speaks and says, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. And of course, at the end of Psalm 23, we find David dwelling in the house of the Lord, in the resting place of the Lord. And so there's likely a, a play on words here where the waters that refresh David are ultimately going to be found in and, and around the house of God. But the main point is that God brings rest to His people. He refreshes His people. And just as we saw in verse 1, this does not mean that every single second of every single day and every hour and every week is going to be one of refreshment. But it that He knows how to give us reprieve in the midst often of great trials. I was thinking um, this past week, for example, about 
Paul and the kinds of ways that the Lord refreshed his soul throughout his various trials that he had in his own ministry. When, for example, he preached the gospel to the Thessalonians, and and many of those um, Thessalonians believed, immediately severe persecution broke out so that Paul was basically stripped away from them. He had to to flee lest he was, was killed. And he wrote about the fact that he had repeatedly tried to get back to them to see them face to face and to encourage them and to be encouraged by them and to ensure that they were walking faithfully with the Lord. But at every single turn, he was prevented. More persecution broke out. Something else was happening at another church. He couldn't get back to them. And so he describes the fact that he, he now has a, has a burden. He says, you know, that when it became overbearing for us, we, we thought it then good to, to send Timothy to you. He, he's going to leave us alone in Athens and we're going to send him to you so that hopefully we can get a good report. And he writes in 1 Thessalonians that Timothy at this point had now returned And when he returned, Paul was yet again in many distresses and afflictions, he says. But Timothy returned with a good report that the Thessalonians were standing fast in the faith, that they were growing in faith and in love. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 7 and 8, he says, for this reason, brothers, In all our distresses and afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul had been burdened. He had been afflicted. He had been persecuted. He had known sorrows and anxiety over the churches. He was burdened specifically for the Thessalonians as we see in the letter. And yet, what does God do? He refreshes him with this good report. Coming to him at just the right time. Coming to him when he needed to be comforted. And that's what the Lord will often do for His people. He's not going to necessarily remove them from the refining fires that are shaping them into the image bearers of Christ. But He knows how to give us reprieve at just the right time when we need it most. When as Paul said of himself, we can no longer bear it. And sometimes that reprieve may seem small and insignificant to most other people. Again, like a report, an an encouraging word about other believers. But for God's sheep, when something like that, something that would seemingly be insignificant, to everyone else comes to them, it's the the exact cup of water they need to drink in the moment to refresh them, strengthen them, so that they continue walking faithfully with the Lord. So He knows how to refresh His people and give them rest when they need it. But in addition to this work of giving His sheep rest, we find also that the Lord as shepherd instructs His people in and through His Word. And we can see this in verse 3. David says of the Lord, he says, He restores my soul. And this is the same idea, the same wording that we found in Psalm 19. When David says there of the law or the Torah, of the Lord, that it it revives or it restores my 
soul. The Word of God ultimately is the means by which He restores and instructs His people because it is by the Word that He reveals Himself to them. He leads in paths of righteousness by means of this same Word because it is the Word that shows us what is righteous. What is pleasing to the Lord? What is the proper path to walk on? And the way we are to live to His glory. We will see at the, uh, the end of the psalm, as we've seen throughout the psalms, that David views his own life, his whole life, through the lens of God's Word and the promises and the covenants that are made throughout His Word. And in the same way, we must see our own lives uh, as, as David does, in light of and, and through the lens of the Word. No one can truly live the Christian life. No one can walk faithfully with the Lord if they are constantly neglecting the Word. Because there's no way that your mind can be transformed apart from it. There's no way that you can actually begin to see the world as it truly is apart from the Word. And if your mind is not transformed, well then what are you going to do? You're going to act just like everyone else. You will think just like everyone else in the world. Maybe... You'll have some peculiarities here and there, but by and large, you're going to be drinking the cup of doctrine that Satan in the powers of the world is pouring into your mouth. But we have to recognize the basic fact that the biblical worldview is wholly different from all others. I mean, what is it? that can lead a person, again, like Paul, to say something from the heart. Like, we rejoice in our sufferings. That, what? That makes no sense. There's no rejoicing in suffering, Paul. And yet, that's what he's saying. How can someone be in the midst of sufferings and say, we rejoice? It's a different worldview. It's a different way of seeing your life, a different way of understanding all of the things that are going on in your life than everyone else would see it. When there's no hope, when there's no promises, when there's no understanding of the eternal life to come or the inheritance that has been granted to you and all your hope is rooted in what is taking place now. When afflictions come, you will crumble under them. As many people tend to do. Christian and non-Christian. Your mind, though, has to be reformed has to be renewed, shaped by the promises and covenants of the Word of God. And when that happens, you will then be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I can rejoice in my sufferings because I know these sufferings are not without purpose. God is using them now. I don't, I don't, I don't understand how, but He's using them now to shape me into the image of Christ, to conform me into His likeness, to make me holy. I have sin that is deep, rooted within my heart. It's got to be plucked out. I've been totally dependent on myself. It's got to be changed. And God uses the fire of trials to change you. But you're not going to see any of that. You're not going to see any of that if your mind isn't shaped 
by the promises and the covenants that are in the Word of God. In a culture where modesty has effectively been thrown in the trash and women are encouraged to boast in the so-called freedom they have by dressing like harlots. In a world that touts this as a good thing to display your body for everyone to see, what would ever lead a woman to think this is not freedom? That everything that the world is saying right now is not freedom, it's a lie. That's bondage. And I'm not going the way of women in the culture. What would lead you to come to that conclusion? It's the Word of God. Transforming your mind. It is the Word that reshapes your thinking so that you think in accordance with the truth of God and not the lies of the serpent who led the man and the woman to eat that thing they thought would bless them, would bring them joy, would bring them wisdom, and plunge the whole human race into the curse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 to 4 says, Do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It's words like that that tell you the truth. That tell you what is truly pleasing in the sight of God and which will bring you Maximum joy and true freedom. And your mind is to be shaped by that word and your life is to be conformed to it. And the Lord, as the good shepherd, leads His sheep into these paths of righteousness. And those paths are laid out for us in the Word. And so we must heed the Word. And thus, through that, listen to the voice of the Good Shepherd who is leading us ultimately to the Kingdom of God. So we see truths about the Lord's shepherding work here in the psalm, but another truth to note here concerns the sheep's comforted soul. This is the next point I want to look at together, the sheep's comforted soul. David writes in verse 4, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, like in many places, David does not spell out exactly what this valley of the shadow of death is for him. Very likely, it had something to do with his enemies and the threats to his own life that were brought by them. Because he speaks later in verse 5 in a triumphal manner of having a table prepared for him in the presence of his enemies. We know from his own life that he suffered great betrayals that even arose from within his own house and closest counselors. People he had done great good to were the very people who turned against him. And not just in the sense of, ah, we don't want to be your friend anymore. No, no, no. They're trying to kill him. <laughs> That's how severed the relationship has become. But whatever he means exactly by this valley of the shadow of death, it is clear that it is no pleasant place. It is no pleasant circumstance. It is like having all of the powers of death assaulting you at once. And some of you may 
know very well at least something of what this is like when everything all at once seems to be going wrong. There is perhaps sickness. There is death. There is conflict. And it all compounds and comes in a single moment. And yet David is not a man who despairs in the midst of this. He recognizes it for what it is. He acknowledges it for the horrific situation that it is. It is a valley of death. But he doesn't despair because he recognizes and believes that God is with him even in the midst of it. And therefore, he's comforted. He's comforted by the knowledge of the Lord's presence with him. And it is the same for you and me. The believer has the promises of God. God promises He will never lose His sheep. He promises that He will be with us to the end of the age. And not only is He with us, but He is also, if we're in Christ, in us. The Spirit of Christ dwells within the heart of every Christian. They are temples of God in which He's making His home. And therefore, the Christian is given supernatural grace that strengthens them to walk faithfully with the Lord and to endure even the worst of trials and ultimately to be able to see in them the hand of God working all things for good. One of my favorite missionaries is a missionary named John G. Patton. He was a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, which is now the uh, modern, it's, it's now called the islands of Vanuatu in the South Pacific Ocean. And the natives who at the time lived there, this would have been end of the 1800s, the natives who lived on the islands were brutal. Uh, they were violent, they were steeped in cannibalism and in paganism, uh, the form of which was based, rooted in fear and ma manipulation. Um, I, I sent a little excerpt, in fact, to Isaac, the translator in Malawi, because the description that Patton had of the pagan religion on the islands was very similar to, to the kind of witchcraft and paganism that's present in, in a country like Malawi. Everything is based on fear and manipulation and power. And, and Patton was on this island trying to preach the Gospel to these, these violent natives who when the first missionary came to those islands, they killed them and cannibalized them. And Patton said that while he was there, he was often harassed by them. And on one occasion, he describes, for example, that he was working in this forest area of the island, and the chief of one of the tribes had a musket. And for four hours, he was following Patton around in the forest, just aiming the musket at him. You can imagine the intimidation that's going to come with that. If every single second you think at any moment he could pull the trigger and I'm dead. So for four hours, the chief was taunting him with this musket. And, and Patton said that he would speak kindly to the chief. He would then pray and then return to his task. But again, this went on for a good four hours. And these kinds of experiences didn't just happen on one occasion. This was a regular experience for Patton. But the Lord sustained him and strengthened him through all of it. And, and he wrote, Patton wrote, that without the abiding consciousness 
of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. And I would have been driven out of my mind. It was the kind of trials that would drive anyone mad except that he knew he had the Lord with him. But later in his life, when he was reflecting on the experiences that he had on the island and having to go through these various trials, he said this. He said, it is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing Him who is invisible. Patton's sweetest moments of communion with the Lord, he says, came in the darkest hours came when the power and the threat of death was hanging over his head. That's the moment when his communion was most sweet with the Lord. And that's what David is speaking about in the psalm. While he's in the valley of the shadow of death, while he's there, the Lord comforts him. Friends, this is our God. This is what He does for us when we commune with Him, when we are walking with Him, when we meditate upon His Word and stay in prayer with Him. The Lord will be with us and He will comfort us in the midst of affliction. What often happens, however, and really to the shame of our own hurt, is that we do not look to His rod and His staff. We do not look to Him at all. Many professing Christians give hardly any effort at all to cultivating a life of holiness and walking regularly with the Lord. And so when the trials come, they're easily shaken. Some fall away altogether. Others lapse into sinful habits. And it's grieving to see. When, when, it, when it appeared as though someone was walking so faithfully and strong with the Lord from what you could see, then the affliction comes and you find out there really were no disciplines. There really was no rooted understanding of the Gospel. And they fall. They start living in sin. It's the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul was worried about with the Thessalonians. He was burdened because he feared that the afflictions the Thessalonians were going through would cause them to fall. He was worried that all of his labor that he had done among them, the preaching of the Gospel, the encouraging to, to remain faithful would be in vain. Because when the persecutions came, when the trials came, they would prove to bear no fruit. And that's often what happens with people. While everything in life is going decently well, they're a strong Christian. But when the trials come, they're almost un unrecognizable. Like, who are you? <laughs> and what did you do with the person I know? Friends, it does not have to be this way. If you trust in the Lord, and you go to His Word, and you follow the examples of David and the prophets and the apostles and ultimately Christ, if you cultivate 
the disciplines and the habits of godliness, if you use the means of grace that God has given to us in the body of Christ, in the Word of God, in prayer, in the worship of the Lord, if you use the means that He's given to us and cultivate this godliness and transform your minds by it, then when you enter the valley of the shadow of death, you will be able to say with David, the rod and the staff of the Lord comforts me. It's hard. It's difficult. The valley is ugly. I don't want to be here, but my God will see me through and will comfort me in it. You will be able to say with Patton, oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing Him who is invisible. You will be able, 10 years later, 20 years later, to remember those moments and to be able to say, I had my sweetest communion in those worst of days. And so the psalm teaches us about the comforted souls of the Lord's sheep. But then lastly, and related to this, we see the sheep's triumphal hope. We've seen already that the primary image of the psalm is that of the Lord as shepherd and His people, David being chief among them as His sheep. And in the beginning of the psalm, it's as if the shepherd is taking his sheep on a journey. He takes the sheep to green pastures. He leads them to waters of rest. He walks them through the dangerous valleys. But at the end of the psalm, we find the sheep being led to the house of God. And here, there is feasting and celebrating. David writes in verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's sitting down now to feast and his enemies who were the cause of his valley of the shadow of death can do nothing about it. They can't stop it. They can't destroy it. If at one point David's enemies thought that they could kill him, now they are having to watch him eat as the victor. He adds, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And and here, this, this isn't necessarily the anointing that takes place when someone is anointed as king at the enthronement. The word that's used here for anointing is in fact the same that we saw back in Psalm 22, verse 29, for fattening or prospering. And the idea is simply that David is being honored. It was a custom to honor guests by anointing their heads with oil. And so David is honored at this table and he has plenty to eat and to drink. And all of this is taking place in the house of the Lord, where He is confident He will dwell forever. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow Me all the days of My life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord literally for the length of days. What David is meditating on here at the end of the psalm is the promise of the covenant made with him by the Lord, in which the Lord promised that his throne would be established and he would have rest from all his enemies. The Lord has saved him. He has now led him through and out of the valley of the shadow of death. And as David is reflecting on his own life and the promises of God in the Word of God, he concludes, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because that's what God promised to him. That his enemies would be defeated. 
and that his house would be established and that one of his offspring would build a house for the Lord. His hope is grounded in the covenant promises of God. And our hope as well is to be grounded in the very same things. Our lives and our thinking should be shaped by the the covenants of God that in Christ we are now made partakers of. And you can just think about what are some of the promises that are made to us in Christ. I mean, virtually all of the covenants that are mentioned in the Old Testament come together in that new covenant. So you can think about what are the blessings that come to those who are in Christ in the new covenant? And how should they shape who we are? Well, of course, one of the chief, one of the ones that we celebrate and sing about most often is, is the forgiveness of sins. That the new covenant in Christ has secured our forgiveness. That when we trust in the Lord, all of the, the punishment and wrath that we justly deserve is poured out upon Him and we receive His righteousness. And we can stand righteous before God. So what what should that then mean for us? If my sins have been forgiven, should I live in sin all the more? By no means. How can we, as Paul says, who have died to sin, still live in it? If my sins required the death of my Savior, why would I continue to live in that which brought me shame and His death. The promises of grace and forgiveness in the new covenant should be the foundation for our turning away from all that is wicked and evil. We are promised in the new covenant as well that we will know Him. Under the Old Covenant, you could be a covenant member of the people of God. You can be an Israelite and have no knowledge of God. You could be a Baal worshiper because you had a dead heart. That's not the case in the New Covenant. If you're in the New Covenant, you know God and He knows you. You're given the promise as well that His Spirit will be given to you. And the Spirit will cause you to walk according to His Word. His ministry will be to take the Word of God and apply it to you so that it transforms your mind and shapes your heart so that you will desire, long to walk in the commandments of God. It is this new covenant work of the Spirit that makes us new. We're given the promise as well of of land and of a, of a kingdom and essentially of the whole world. The promises that were originally given to Abraham and his ethnic descendants is expanded throughout the Old Testament and into the New to cover the entire creation so that the new heavens and the new earth become our possession in Christ. It is the land of peace and prosperity and righteousness. The land that has no sin. The land that has Christ as King over it all. It is this land that is promised to come to us who are in Christ. A land that is no longer under the curse. But a land that will be forever fruitful and blessed. And we are given a promise as well that God will be our God and we will be His people. Which means that what David was hoping in, was trusting in, that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever, is a promise that also comes to us. Because when God becomes our God and we become His people, the end result of that all will be the day when God will be dwelling in and among His people once again. In the garden, that was lost. 
In the garden, we had God walking in the cool of the day with man. And when sin entered into the world, there's a break. Heaven and earth are not joined together. There's a separation. And now this earth has become the place of types and shadows. Now this earth is the place of darkness that is passing away. But in the work of Christ, it is being swallowed up by life. So that eventually when the day comes, when Christ returns in His fullness, man and God will be dwelling with one another yet again. The Garden of Eden will be restored and multiplied to cover the whole face of the earth. These are our promises, which has profound implications for us, friends, when we are going through any sort of afflictions. What are these afflictions in light of the great glory that is to come? It is a valley of the shadow of death. There may indeed be tremendous pain in it, but we have to be looking towards the promises. And what God tells us is that He will ultimately bring us into His kingdom where there is no longer sin, death, or weeping anymore. Let's go to the Lord and close with a word of prayer. Well, Father, like David, we want our, our minds, our way of thinking, our desires to be shaped by the promises that You have given that themselves have determined and shaped the world. We want our lives to reflect the hope that is within us in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, for Your kind, shepherding hand that You would lead us in paths of righteousness, that when the valleys of the shadow of death come, we would be comforted by You, by Your Word, by the work of the Spirit. And Lord, ultimately, that as we continue to look at Christ, You will help us to see Him more clearly, especially when we bear crosses, but ultimately, Lord, You will help, help us to see Him most clearly at His return and the everlasting kingdom. Keep us, we pray, in Jesus' name.